Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8, and we're going to go through the end of chapter 7 this morning. And if you read ahead, you perhaps had a little bit of deja vu this week, thinking, didn't we already work through all five of these ritual sacrifices in all their gory and wonderful detail? Doesn't that mean that we can skip this remix of a section? And the answer, of course, is no. God does not speak superfluous words. He does not give us unneeded information in the Bible. And sections like this have tremendous value to us. They seem eminently skippable, but we do ourselves a disservice when we simply pass over them quickly without second thought. Indeed, we reveal much about ourselves and our inability to meditate or think long on much of anything. The Bible is so out of step with culture these days where everything is quick, everything is easy, and everything is easily consumable, and yet it demands that we take our time and our energy to stop and think. Indeed, this section of Scripture is a a little bit like a gobstopper. A gobstopper is hard candy for you candy curmudgeons out there. And what happens when you have a a gobstopper is if you try to eat it really quickly, you're going to swallow it whole and it's not going to be a very good experience. Uh, You you might choke on it. If you you try to bite into one of those bad boys right away, you might even chip your tooth. It's not going to go well. But if you take that everlasting gobstopper and you put it in your mouth and you work it around and, and you suck on it a little bit, if you're like a kid, you pull it out and look, you'll find that it changes colors and flavors over time. And by the time you're through with it, you go, that was quite the satisfying experience. And so this section of Leviticus is is a gobstopper, deja vu kind of section. It requires that we, we slow down and we think a little bit about what God is trying to communicate to us here. And what we saw in the first few chapters of Leviticus in considering these same ritual sacrifices was a great number of things. But, but we got all of that from the perspective of the worshiper, of the one who is bringing the offering. And what we have here, starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, is we get these instructions that are given to the priests. And so now we're going to look at those rituals from the perspective of the priest. And what we find out is that God is holy. His holiness is to be valued. He cares about how his people worship him and that they worship him. And so he gives the priests these instructions. In these chapters, we find out that God is present with his people, provides for his people, and calls his people to be holy as he is holy. Your outline is reflected in that way. God's present, he provides for his people, and he's holy. And our exhortation this morning is to live according to God's commands. Because in so doing, we reflect his holy character and express our loyalty to King Jesus. Let's pray and we will begin. Father, 
we thank you for dark and dreary mornings such as this. When we are very tempted to stay in our beds and snuggle in close with our sheets and perhaps watch a movie or read a book. And yet you call us together for worship. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and do that which is better. Come and to hear your word and to encourage one another. We thank you that in the midst of dreariness and rain, we are reminded that Christ came as light into the world. We pray this morning that you would speak to us in this time, that you would encourage us. I ask that uh, you would help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared, that you would turn the water of my preparation into wine that would satisfy those who hear as they are pointed to Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, we want to remind ourselves of the context of Leviticus. It takes context in the story of the Exodus. The people have come out of Egypt and into sonship. God drew them out of slavery. And now he says to his people, you are my people and I am your God. He's rescued them and now he's giving them rules that will govern them. God has saved his people and made them holy. He's set them apart from all the other peoples in the world. And now he's telling them, since you are my holy people, this is how you are to live as my holy people. And he begins by showing them the sacrificial system, which answers that big question that kind of hangs over Leviticus. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And God's answer is through sacrifice, through this sacrificial system. And so God has given the instructions to the people about how to participate in this, how to find their sins forgiven by him. And now we turn our attention to those instructions given to the priests, and he begins once more with the burnt offering. Look with me at verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, Command Aaron and his sons, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself must remain on the altar's hearth all night until morning while the fire on the altar is kept burning on it. Just a quick reminder, remember, every morning and every evening, the priests would offer a daily burnt offering on behalf of the people. So they would come out, they would go through the procedure, and they would have that burnt offering on the altar in the morning. And then in the evening, as the last offering of the day, they would slaughter another bull. They would put it on the offering as the final burnt offering. And they had to keep that fire going all night as that offering went up. And then the morning, before they would offer the burnt offering in the morning, they had to clear away ashes. So we see here, verse 10, the priest is to put on his linen robe and linen undergarments, He is to remove the ashes of the burnt offering the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he will take off his garments, put on other clothes, and bring the ashes outside the camp to a ceremonially clean place. This seems kind of odd to us why he would have to change clothes, but underneath of this change of clothes is one of the major themes in this chapter, which is that the holy is not to be confused with the common. 
And we are to ensure that the holy never comes into contact with that which is unclean. And so the priests have holy priestly garments which are designated to specific tasks. This isn't so weird when you think about it. You too have clothing that is designated for specific tasks. You have pajamas for sleeping. You have play clothes for playing, work clothes for working. And when you go to particular ceremonies, you have special clothes there too. Think of a wedding ceremony, something you might wear to a wedding. Some of you have church clothes, things that you wear to church. My kids think that that is flannel for some reason because I've been wearing lots of flannel, I guess. They see somebody in a flannel shirt and they're why are they wearing church clothes? What's going on here is an emphasis on God's holiness. And that's a theme we're going to, to pick up later. I just thought I'd bring it to your attention now. Let's, let's keep reading verse 12. The fire on the altar is to be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest will burn wood on the fire. He is to arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat portions from the fellowship offerings on it. Fire must be kept burning on the altar continually. It must not go out. And so, just to, to remind ourselves of what happens during the burnt offering, the, the worshiper would bring his sacrifice, lean on his sacrifice, identifying himself with the sacrifice and the sacrifice with his sins, confessing his sin. The sacrifice would then be slaughtered in the appropriate way. And in the case of the burnt offering, the whole thing would burn up on the altar. And the worshiper would be reminded, I'm a sinner, God is holy, I deserve death, I need a substitute. And so that, that mantra each day would be reinforced as smoke continually billowed up to the sky from the center of the camp. I am a sinner, God is holy, I need a substitute. I need a substitute so that I might be in relationship with this holy God. In Leviticus, the central image describing the relationship between the Lord and Israel is that of a covenant king who lives with his people. God is the king at the center of the camp. And there in front of his, his palace, his tabernacle, is an altar and it's through the sacrifices that are made on the altar that the people are able to enjoy living with the king. And so this, this smoke would always be going up, always be reminding them of God's holiness, their unholiness, their need for a sacrifice to come into his presence. The fire on the altar was always burning. Did you notice that emphasis in that, that little paragraph? Five times we are told that the fire is to be kept burning or that it's not to go out. And so the question comes, well, why? Let me offer to you two suggestions. The, to emphasize the presence of God is the first one. And the second is to emphasize the dependence of the people upon God. And we'll start with emphasizing the presence of God, which is symbolized by fire throughout the Bible. When God cuts a covenant with Abraham, his presence is symbolized by a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch which passes between the pieces of the animals as he makes that covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. God appears to Moses 
in a flame of fire within a bush. As the Lord leads his people out of Egypt and brings judgment on the Egyptian army, he appears as a pillar of fire and a cloud. In Exodus 19, 18, when he gives the people the law, we read, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like that of a smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. The Lord revealed himself to Ezekiel in a vision of fire. Daniel has a vision of the Lord where the Lord's throne is fire. Its wheels are fire and fire comes out from the presence of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us our God is a consuming fire. Indeed, in the tabernacle itself, the lampstand would have been burning as a reminder of God's presence. Likewise, the fire of the altar was always to be kept burning to remind the people that God was present in their midst. That indeed, their Lord and their God dwelled among them. And Christian, we don't have a physical altar where the fire is always kept burning to remind us of God's presence. But we do have a reminder. We are indwelt, if you are a Christian, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, when Jesus pours out his Spirit on the church, the Spirit's presence is represented by tongues of fire above their heads. There's not an altar burning out there externally as an external witness, but there is an internal witness of the Holy Spirit within each and every Christian, and it's always burning. God is always present with you, Christian. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And the Spirit testifies to that, testifies to his presence in your life, reminds you that God is committed to you, that he won't be disappointed with you because you are united to Christ by faith. That means even on the worst of your days, your faith is in Jesus. You can know that God is, is not disappointed with you. The Spirit reminds us, it assures us, he, the Spirit, Holy Spirit assures us of our faith by reminding us of our union with Jesus. And because you are united to Jesus by faith, that means that God will cease to be pleased with you when he is done being pleased with Jesus. That's never going to happen. It means that you are more loved than you know. And while God desires our pursuit of holiness, he desires that our faith is expressed through doing good works, our good works never bring about our salvation or our status with God. I mean, can you imagine if, as a parent, I'll imagine for you, I can't imagine if one of my children came to me and said, maybe it was Elliot, Elliot, can you imagine coming to me and saying, Daddy, I really want you to love me, and so I'm going to, I'm going to be extra good today. But I would be offended. Well, yeah, I really want you to be good. 
But I don't, I don't love you because you're good. I love you because you're mine. And this is why God loves his people. Because they belong to him. Christian, when you are united to Jesus by faith, you belong to God. And the Holy Spirit testifies to God's presence with you and in you. Does the reality of God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you affect your life at all? Does it encourage you when you are discouraged? Does that fact prompt you towards holiness and Christ-likeness? Does it matter at all? The altar reminded the Israelites of God's presence with them in their midst and of what it costs for him to be in fellowship with them, of his provision for their great need, which is to have their sins covered. And that brings us to the second reason that the altar was to be kept burning, would be to be a reminder of God's provision for sin. All of these sacrifices pointed the people to their need for atonement from sin. Remember we talked about last week how each of the atoning sacrifices give us a different picture of sin's costs and of how God deals with it. The whole burnt offering gives us a personal picture of sin, wherein uh, the substitute dies in my place for my sin so that I might have peace with God. And the purification offering is brought because sin makes me unclean. It makes me dirty and filthy before God. In fact, it even stains the environment in the camp. And so we get this medical picture of the blood of a sacrifice making clean the one who is defiled by sin. Making clean the camp. And then last week we looked at the guilt or compensation offering. We saw that that sin breaks fellowship. It, it puts us in God's debt. It requires restoration and repayment. And so we have this commercial picture of sin where it's a price that has to be paid. And those who trust in God's sacrifice are ransomed. God accepts the sacrifice as payment for the sin debt that we owe. And of course, we talk about all of these things point us to Jesus, who is the perfect, blemishless Lamb of God, who dies in our place for our sin, whose blood washes away our sins and and makes us pure before God, who pays the sin debt that you and I never could have paid. Jesus is the one who brings us into relationship with our holy God. And the Israelites, looking to the center of the camp where the fire burned, would have been reminded of God's presence and that that presence required God's gracious provision if they were to live in it. Otherwise, the holy God would consume them. For the wages of sin is death. God provided for the deep needs of the Israelites as they trusted in his promise and looked proleptically to what Christ would accomplish on the cross. And he meets our deep need of reconciliation with him as we trust in his promise 
now revealed in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate end of the sacrificial system. And as the Spirit testifies to our union with Christ and we are reminded of God's presence with us, we too are reminded of his provision for us, of what it cost to be united to Christ, of what fellowship with God and with one another cost. And we are led to rejoicing and to gratefulness. God not only meets the deep needs of the Israelites here. I got ahead of myself. What we notice in these sections, we're going to kind of helicopter over most of it since we've read it all before, and so we're going to just drop down into specific sections. But what I want you to notice is in these instructions to the priest is that they too need to recognize that they are dependent upon the Lord. And so we, we have the grain offering, which we looked at uh, in chapter 2, But we get this new information in verse 19 of chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is the offering that Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord on the day he is anointed. Two quarts of fine flour is a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning, half of it in the evening. It is to be prepared with oil on a griddle. You are to bring it well kneaded. You are to present it as a grain offering of baked pieces, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest who is one of Aaron's sons and will be anointed to take his place is to prepare it. It must be completely burned as a permanent portion for the Lord. Every grain offering for a priest will be a whole burnt offering. It is not to be eaten. We have this reminder within the grain offering instructions to the priest that they too need sacrifices. That they too are fully dependent upon the Lord for their salvation, for their well-being that they're not above anyone else. That though functionally they are different, they they act as priests while the rest of the Israelites get get to farm and carry on different occupations, that even though their function is different, they still desperately need the grace and provision of God. It would have been a reminder every morning and every evening, lest they be tempted towards spiritual pride. And what a lesson for us all to be reminded daily, morning and evening, that all that we have is because of the grace of God. Indeed, we have nothing to boast about because we don't have anything that we didn't receive. Let us be a grateful people, mindful of God's provision in our lives, always giving thanksgiving and praise to our God and King who has been so good to us. And God not only is meeting the deep needs of the Israelites and of the priests, but here we see in these chapters, this chapter and then some, that God is meeting the daily needs of the priests. Look at at verse 7 of chapter 7. The guilt offering is like the sin offering. The law is the same for both. It belongs to the priest who makes atonement with it. And so we read before and we've read elsewhere that when the compensation offering or the purification offering is made, that the priests can eat it. They're allowed to eat this food. God is providing them with some food. Verse 8, As for the priest who presents someone's burnt offering, the hide of the burnt offering 
he has presented belongs to him. It is the priest's. So the hide of burnt offerings are also belonging to the priests. Verse 9, any grain offering that is baked in an oven or prepared in a pan or on a griddle belongs to the priest who presents it. It's his. But any grain offering, whether dry or mixed with oil, belongs equally to all Aaron's sons. The, The priests are able to eat these grain offerings. And then in regards to the fellowship offering, if you look down in verse 31 of chapter 7, we read this. The priest is to burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from your fellowship sacrifices. The son of Aaron, who presents the blood of the fellowship offering and the fat, will have the right thigh as a portion. I have taken from the Israelites the breast of the presentation offering, the thigh of the contribution from their fellowship sacrifice, and have assigned them to the priests. Aaron and to his sons as a permanent portion from the Israelites. This is the portion from the fire offerings to the Lord for Aaron and his sons since the day they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the Israelites on the day he anointed them. It is a permanent portion throughout their generations. One could not be a vegan and be a priest. Lots of meat and a gloriously holy diet there. Sure, they ate vegetables and fruits somewhere along the way also. But you see that God is providing for the needs of his priests. He he understands that for them to act well in their job to carry out these ritual sacrifices as well as teach the law to the people, that they needed to be provided for. And of course, this principle is brought over into the church it continues in the New Testament. This is what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. He writes in the same vein when instructing Timothy about how the church should treat elders in 1 Timothy 5. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. The worker is worthy of his wages. And so you can see this principle of providing for those who would be serving the church in full-time ministry, it's just carried over. God understands that shepherds can't care well for the sheep, if they are controlled by other desires and outward, outside concerns, how am I going to make money? And so he set up that those who preach the gospel might earn a living by the gospel. That doesn't mean that all pastors or elders will always be paid. It's a good thing. We couldn't afford to have more than one, I don't think. But I am I'm really thankful for those who give up this right to compensation to serve in a volunteer capacity. Remember what we've said, that, that lay elders are like volunteer firefighters? They don't get paid, but they show up and they fight the same fires and do the same things. And so I'm thankful that, that Mike and David do that. All elders, regardless of payment status, regardless of whether or not they're on the payroll, are worthy of being honored. That's part of what's going on here. The, the thigh and the breast were very high-regarded portions of the animal. The priests are being honored. 
And the way we honor our leaders now is told to us in Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Church, let us continue to obey and submit to our leaders so that they might watch over us with joy. Speaking as a member of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, I am thankful. I'm thankful for Mike and David. They are men who pray for me and care for me and put up with me and shepherd my soul in a way that um, causes me to grow into Christ-likeness and grace. I'm thankful for them. Maybe, I hope that you are thankful for them too. Take time this week to let them know that you are thankful for them. Offer to double their salary. Speaking as your pastor, I am thankful that you are committed to submitting to the word of God and to doing anything that is possible to become as faithful to the Lord as possible. It is a great joy to shepherd a people that want to do what God's word says. And so we see that God provides not only for the deep needs of his people, that he's present with his people, but he also provides for the daily needs of those who are leading the people in worship. Namely, the the priests here and in the New Testament are pastors or elders. And that brings us to the last theme, which is that God is holy. And and this shows up a whole bunch throughout the chapter. I'm just going to read a couple verses. In verse 16, Aaron and his sons may eat the rest of it. This is in regards to the grain offering. It is to be eaten in the form of unleavened bread in a holy place. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Down in verse 26, the priest who offers it, this is the sin offering, who offers it is a sin offering, will eat it. It is to be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. The guilt offering, likewise, is to be eaten in a holy place. And that takes us to the fellowship sacrifice. The meat of this Thanksgiving sacrifice of fellowship, verse 15, must be eaten on the day he offers it. He may not leave it until morning. If the sacrifice he offers is a vow or a free will offering, it is to be eaten on the day he presents his sacrifice. And what is left over may be eaten on the next day. But what remains of the sacrificial meat by the third day must be burned. If any of the meat of his fellowship sacrifice is eaten on the third day, it will not be accepted. It will not be credited to the one who presents it. It is repulsive. The person who eats any of it will bear his iniquity. Meat that touches anything unclean must not be eaten. It is to be burned. Everyone who is clean may eat any other meat. But the one who eats meat from the Lord's fellowship sacrifice while he is unclean, that person must be cut off from his people. If someone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or unclean animal or any unclean, abhorrent creature and eats meat from the Lord's fellowship sacrifice, that person is to be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are not to eat any fat of an ox, a sheep, or a goat. The fat of an animal that dies naturally or is mauled by wild beasts may be used for any other purpose, but you may not eat of it. 
If anyone eats animal fat from a fire offering presented to the Lord, the person who eats it is to be cut off from his people. Wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. Whoever eats any bird is to be cut off from his people. And so we can see here that this fellowship offering is being offered, and there are three different versions of the fellowship offering. You can offer it in regards to a praise or thanksgiving offering. You can offer it in regards to a vow or you can offer it just because, or as a free will offering, remember? And so you could just offer it as a way of saying thank you. And if you did that, all the meat had to be eaten on the day it was offered. You couldn't take any home. You had to make sure it was all eaten or you could eat it or, or burn it. With the vow or the just because offering, you had an extra day to consume the meat. Then if it wasn't eaten, you had to burn it or get rid of it, but couldn't eat it. It would be defiling if you ate it. And then we see this note that if an unclean person eats meat from one of these sacrifices, this holy meat, he is to be cut off from the people. And the same thing applies to the person who would eat blood or eat fat. And so what all of these things, all of these kind of food laws come together to teach us is that God is serious about his holiness. And to ignore his rules in regards to the eating of the things that belonged to him was an affront to his holiness. Sin. The holy and the unclean must never come into contact with one another. And if they do, the penalty is being cut off from the people. God is serious about holiness. So you can see that the penalty for sinning against God is is tremendous. Being cut off is is no small thing. There's two uh, ways that the Bible uses this phrase. One means to put somebody into exile, and this would have been tantamount to a living death. And the other would be for, um, I don't know why commentators call it this, they just say premature death. The other would just be death. Right, so to be cut off from the people, you're going to be put in exile or you're going to be killed and you can see that this is a serious offense. And I assume this takes place if one doesn't quickly confess and, and repent of sin and offer the guilt offering. It seems that these would be high-handed sins that God would uh, not take lightly. Not that he takes any sin lightly. And so the penalty for sinning against God's holiness in this way, would be exile or death. I wonder, do we take sin this seriously? After all, isn't God overreacting? It's not always sinful to become unclean in Leviticus. It could come as the, the consequence of you know, just normal, normal habits. Sexual intercourse made you unclean. Having a baby made you unclean. These are not bad things. Those are commands of God in Genesis 3. Be fruitful, multiply. And as we'll see later on, the unclean and clean laws are, are meant to teach us about God's holiness. So is it, isn't God overreacting if somebody unclean eats? Just, just eight holy sacrifices? What's the big deal? The answer is, it is a big deal because God says it's a big deal. And it's a sin against him. And so it doesn't matter what our perception of a particular sin is. That's ah, not that big of a deal. Really, we're going to get upset about this sin? Because God sees it as sin. And sin leads to death. 
And he is deadly serious about us living in a way that is consistent with his holy character. This is true for us as a church, First Peter says, chapter 1, verse 15. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, and it's written in Leviticus, this could be the theme of Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. Holiness means being set apart as God's people in relationship with a holy God. And it means displaying the reality of that relationship in every sphere of our lives. It means being holy. Now, of course, we're not going to do this to perfection, but we are going to be in pursuit of holiness. Christians are to be characterized by holiness. It's important. It's it's not optional. And when we are not, if we choose to confess the name of Christ and yet deliberately sin against God, God takes that seriously. That's why he gives us the the description and prescriptions of, of church discipline in the Bible. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They lie about, they give a bunch of money to the church, but they lie about the amount because they kept some of it back. They sold a house and some property, gave a bunch of the money to the church, kept some of it for themselves, but lied and said, we gave all the money we got, all the proceeds. And you remember what happens? God kills them. But, but wasn't that just a small sin? Isn't God overreacting? No, sin leads to death. We've seen it over and over and over in Leviticus. That's why we have all these offerings. Sin separates from God. It demands payment. It makes dirty. It requires that we're made clean. Atonement must be made. And those who ignore the laws of God and run headlong into sin are in rebellion against God. And in Leviticus, they are removed from the people of God. In the New Testament, they are removed from the people of God. Ananias and Sapphira are removed. We're warned about it in regards to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, some of you are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You're showing up and you're getting drunk. And you're not caring about your other brothers and sisters. This is why some of you are sick. This is why some of you have died. Because you've not loved your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why Jesus gives us the prescriptions for for church discipline in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and in Titus 3. Because God cares about his holiness. And when his people walk around and live unholy lives, they lie about what he is like. And God does not put up with being lied about. Sin is serious. And if we are to be the people of God, if we are those who have repented of sin and are walking with Christ, then we will pursue holiness in our own lives and we will value God's holiness above all else. Because that's what God says is important. We're told this again in 1 Peter when we're given the same charge that Israel's given in Exodus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of he who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are to live holy lives that reflect the holy character of our holy God who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. If we are in Christ Jesus and we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But if we persist to walk in the darkness, we reveal that we've never really come to the light. God calls his people to be holy. And praise God, he has had mercy on us who do not deserve it. Grace on us, a people who were not a people. In Leviticus, the central image of describing the relationship between God and his people is that of a king. Of God and his palace at the center of the camp. You know, the holy of holies. Ark of the Covenant is his footstool, and from there he reigns and rules. He's with the people. And when Christ Jesus comes into the world at Christmas, this image finds a fullness. The king comes to dwell among his people. As John 1.14 puts it, he came and tabernacled among us. What Christmas is about. The infinite becomes finite. The unmade becomes made. God never ceases to be who he is, but becomes what he is not in the person of Christ Jesus. The immortal makes himself killable. Why? so he can live in fellowship with his people, so that he can ransom to himself sinners, so that he can die in the place of all who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus comes so that we can come to him and have our sins wiped away. Jesus comes to pay the penalty for our sin. He takes the punishment that is due to us. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. Because our God has done it. Our God dwells among us. Non-Christian, if you don't follow Christ, I want to implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Give up living life your way and follow the God that you were made for. There will be a cost. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It is hard to follow Jesus. It feels like dying. But as Jesus has said, the one who trusts in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. In denying yourself and following Jesus, you will find fullness of joy in Christ. And your hope will no longer be captive to your current circumstances or situations. It will be kept in heaven with Christ Jesus. And did you all rejoice in the glory that is to come? 
Christian, let us delight in the fact that because of Jesus, God is present with us and in us and that we will live eternally with him and with one another. Let us resolve to be holy as he is holy. Let us resolve to live according to God's commandments, reflecting his holy character and expressing loyalty to him, our good and mighty king. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. We are a sinful people, an imperfect people, and yet you have called us your own. You've chosen to love us, not because of anything good within us, but because you are good. You have forgiven our sins and freed us to live holy lives in obedience to your character. We thank you that as we submit ourselves to your will, we will discover that holiness and happiness aren't so different after all. That we were made to live life according to your design. And in so doing, we will find deep joy, satisfaction in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be changed by it. We give you honor and glory and praise. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.